Ladies and gentlemen, the following program, True Crime Uncensored, is produced with a vengeance by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network, including but not limited to Error FM, your iPhone, your iTunes, your iPad, your droids, your Android, your god everything in the universe. All of the above. I am the legendary Burl Bear, the man on the lawyer. <laughs> Thank you, thank you. No photos. The man, the man in the lawyer chair, famed attorney Don Waldman. That's our guest screaming as she climbs on the warm and fuzzy knee of Uncle Al Capone. Yes. Deidre, hi there. How you doing? I'm good, thank you, Burl. Uh, my first question, i got to ask this, and this may be out of order, but that'll be out of order in terms of politeness, but just in that terms of the story. That would be your questions, wouldn't it? The number one best-selling little cigar in America is called Al Capone. Are you getting any loot off of that? None. You should be, you know. Well, it's, it's, everybody's using it. You, you go to fly through Midway Airport in Chicago, you'll see license plates, you'll see shot glasses, bobblehead dolls, everything with Al Capone's likeness. There's even a spaghetti sauce out there. Well, he's got a so, public image of some sort. I guess so. <laughs> I, I had a highly marketable one. I saw a fellow uh, interview with a, a manager on TV a couple of weeks ago who specializes in representing dead celebrities. Uh, you know, no Dean, client complaints that way. Well, yeah, <laughs> it's the best kind to have. Uh, Dean Martin, for example, or, or Elvis or John Wayne, and, you know, for marketing and licensing of, uh, of these celebrities. And while... Mr. Capone's reputation is not exactly unsullied at this time in our culture. He does kind of come under that classification. Of course he does. And, you know, that would be nice because there are all kinds of people that are making a great deal of money. You know, you can't, um, you can't copyright the name, but you can copyright the likeness with the name. Mm -hmm. And so that's, I mean, who knows? Maybe it's if I don't die, you know, maybe something will come about. <laughs> yeah. Didger, after all these years, why a book? I started writing this book. My father committed suicide just before my 11th birthday. Mm. And I started to write while well, I kept a diary. And so I was asking my family members about things, you know, what had happened, all those kinds of things. Uh, there was a report that my father was writing a book at the time he died, and it was called The Sins of the Father. And so, um, anyway, they made me promise that I would not write a book until all the original family members had died. Why do you think they wanted and, that promise from you? I think because of other people. You know, there's, there is a term in the mob, and a, and a, and a term with the Italian people of that time, and it's called omerta. Omerta means you, you can see anything, but you don't share that information with anyone. You just keep it very, very quiet. I think all of your audience, probably even the two of you, have known of someone sometime that knew someone that was part of a mob in some city, and they never said anything. Kind of like working for the government. Kind of like a lot, like a lot of guests we've had on our show. Yes. It's amazing. Yeah. We've had a lot of uh, mobsters, ex-mobsters, and people in the witness yeah. protection program on the show. True confessions after the fact. Yes, absolutely. But back in that era, they really did adhere to Admirta. And they, you know, your word was your bond. And if you broke your word, 
suffered the consequences. It was a very simple rule. Yeah, also, wasn't it your word is your bond, family is everything, the complete statement? Absolutely. Your word is your bond and family is everything. Absolutely right. That's the way I was brought up. And I've been married to the same man for 48 years. I've known him for 54 years. He, he, he will attest to the fact that I do not lie. The, the tragic part is the younger members of the family don't follow the same credo that you do. No, and so often that happens in generations. Um, the same messages are uh, passed out. My children are. I've got four children. I've got 14 grandchildren. One of my grandsons just got married, so now I've got, I've got a granddaughter-in-law. And if you look... There's not, no one has been arrested. Nobody has had a speeding ticket. You know, they're all college graduates. Um, some have got their MBAs. So, I mean. <laughs> they didn't follow the family business. <laughs> no, 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 no. But they do have the family genes. Yeah, this one but thing I, I noticed about the many things I noticed about Uncle Al is. It's, it's kind of tragic in a way. He was obviously a brilliant man. Absolutely. At the height of his career, and this is something that I want to tell your audience, my grandfather was Al's older brother, and my grandfather ran the outfit. Al was the flamboyant one. He loved to be out in the spotlight. He, you know, loved to, you know, sparkle. My grandfather did not. But at the height of their career, they had over 300 speakeasies. And they didn't have a cell phone, and they didn't have a fax machine. Just think about that. They must have communicated in other manners. Well, they, well, it's like the shadow. They have newsboys on the street. <laughs> you know, they exactly. got, it's called messengers. They got the paid-off cops. They got you know eyes and ears everywhere. One of the questions exactly. I always had is, where did all this money go? It just doesn't make sense that it just sort of disappeared and he didn't have any money when he was incarcerated. What happened and what the story was that I got is that both my grandfather and Al, um, you know, started to get heat from the federal government about income tax evasion. Both of them wanted to pay their debt. Just tell me what I owe. And I want to tell everybody a little bit about what the income tax system was like in 1930. You know, people didn't send you out a form to fill out. You know, you didn't have cards to fill out and less than 1% of the people in the United States at that time paid income tax. They didn't have to because they didn't earn enough money. There was also a provision in the very first form of the income tax where you did not have to pay income tax on any income that you earned illegally. Because that <laughs> that's, that's, I like that one. Yeah, we should put that well, one back into effect. <laughs> just think about it for that's a minute. It would be self-incriminating, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. I made you know? all this money uh, doing illegal things. Yeah, they, they've exactly. Sort of, they've bypassed self-incrimination. Yeah, that'd be like a violation of the Fifth Amendment. Exactly. So anyway, the feds wouldn't let them go. They wanted to get rid of my family. They did everything and anything to to do that. And so um, my grandfather was first to get tried and sentenced, and he got three years. Frank Nitty got three years. All these people were getting either one, two, or three years. So Al comes up to trial, and he thought he would—he thought he was going to get off. In fact, he paid off the jury, and the judge found out about it, and they switched <laughs> jury. But um, 
he thought at the most he would get three, maybe five years, all right? So what he did is he gave his wife, his mother, his family cash. Here's the cash. This should last you. You'll be able to do everything for at least five years with this cash. And he took the rest of it and he put it in safety deposit boxes in banks all over the place. And I think it was mainly Cuba. From what my grandfather told me, I think it was in Cuba. How and much? Then, Any idea how much we're talking about? Oh, millions. Okay. Millions of dollars. The missing I mean, money. it was reported that he was making over $120 million a year. But anyway... That's when that was a lot of money. Yeah. Exactly. Anyway, and they had plans. They were going to go into a different business. So he took those keys and he put them in a strong box and buried them. Well, when he got sentenced, he got sentenced to 11 years. And no one knew where that strong box was. So I think that my family's money financed Baptista's revolution. Mm. Because the banks pay for safety deposit box by the year. So he probably went in and paid enough for five years, and at the end of five years, there's no money coming in. They don't know who owns that safety deposit box. So the government says to open it and look inside. Well, if you open it and look inside and it's filled with cash, guess what? Cash is fungible. People are going to say, there was nothing in that. No, no, the thing was empty. It was empty. I don't know why. It's a a great concept, but do you think there's any truth to it? I do believe there is a grain of truth there. Yes, I do. Now, when, when, uh, when Al got out, he was I don't know if he was how clearly he was thinking because I understand he was suffering from uh, from syphilitic dementia part of the time. Did he remember you know, where he buried the where he buried the boxes? That's another reason why I wrote this book. There's a hundred and five different books out there that have been written about Al Capone or about that era, and he was and probably you know, a dozen movies to boot. Exactly. Not a single one was ever written by anybody that knew him. No one heard his voice. No one saw the color of his eyes. No one sat in his lap, slept in his bed, ate food with him. So they would do their research by going to old magazine newspaper articles, and they would go to police blotters. They thought that that was the truth. You know, you you go through an incident in your life today, and you read about it in the paper. How much is true? Oh, boy. Well, being as I'm an investigative journalist, I can tell you stories can change very quickly depending on who's got some money. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what I have been up against. Al Capone was of sound mind and body. When when they transferred him from Atlanta to Alcatraz, they did it for one reason, and that was for the notoriety. Warden Johnson wanted the world to know that this prison once you went there you never escaped from it so in order to do that they transferred al capone out there he should have never been on alcatraz was there any um, truth to the story that there was an attempt to break him out while they were transferring him from one prison to alcatraz no no because that was another story i remember seeing a reading no that is not true he that's was just very fiction well then, started. Huh? that's fiction but anyway getting back to that um he was working on a writ of habeas corpus when he was in Atlanta, and he was very close to getting it. A writ of habeas corpus is that you are t- you were incarcerated 
without all the information. So, well, what, it, what, it re- what it really is is produce the body, and what's the basis of his being in jail? Correct. And you go back to who convicted you. You go back to that courtroom and that judge. So they were afraid of that. They were afraid that, yes, then he would escape. So that was another reason why it made sense to them to transfer him out to Alcatraz. Well, Alcatraz has no writ of habeas corpus. Because of the heinous crimes that these people commit, they would be afraid to have them go back. But they did have a provision, time off for good behavior. He was convicted to 11 years. He got out in seven. And the the powers to be were afraid that he was going to come back and go into power. Before he was convicted, he was planning to run for mayor of Chicago. Ah, that's, he, he would have won. Yes, that's just like when Timothy Leary was running for governor of California, and it was exactly. it, looked, it looked exactly like he was going to win, and that's when he got popped. Yeah, in that era, he was amazingly popular. He was like a pop idol in that era in Chicago. I grew up in Chicago, and of course, you learn oh, yeah. all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, he had a, after the ni- 1929 crash, he opened the very first kit, the soup kitchens in the world. He, yeah. he was he was feeding the poor and the hungry, and that's boy that the guy will get your votes. Well, of course it would. It's nice so that he gave was the another charity. reason. And he hated politicians. He hated politicians. So anyway, they sent him to Alcatraz, and he was a model prisoner. They tried to get him to escape. They stabbed him. They did everything that they could to make him, you know, serve out the rest of the sentence. He didn't. Then they came up with this harebrained scheme that now they had a treatment for syphilis. So they started shooting him with chemicals. And the priest that was at the head of Alcatraz at that time used to call my Aunt May, um, Al's um, wife, and my grandfather, begging them to do something. They're destroying Al's mind. He doesn't even know who I am. When he got out of jail, they had a big party for him in Chicago. My mother was pregnant with me at the time, and she was there. And she said he would go up to his mother and say, Who are you? And she would tell him in, you know, Italian. And then he'd go up to his sister, and who are you? And then he would go back to his mother. He would go in and use the bathroom and not close the door. You know, he'd pass gas at will. That was not Sounds like he man. would fit in right here at the uh, LR no, Radio. No, 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 right. no, Right. No. He'd fit in with you with your cigars and stuff. And all. You know about us, huh? Yeah, I know about you. I, I did a little research. <laughs> you guys are fun. So anyway, my grandfather was very concerned about him and did, you know, did some calling around and found a psychiatrist at Johns Hopkins. And they took him to Johns Hopkins, and that's where he was on the day that I was born. So... In my book, you'll see the telegrams that they sent, and you'll see that Baltimore, you know, Maryland, is stamped in the upper right-hand corner because they they were in Johns Hopkins on the day that I was born. They leached his body. I talked with the psychiatrist's wife, and she went into great detail with me about how, how concerned her husband was about Al Capone and the different chemicals that they had injected him with. Any idea and, what the chemicals were they were putting into him? This is me, and somebody could get upset with me, but I think they were trying to perform a chemical lobotomy on my uncle. 
Yeah, to you know, pump him so full of stuff that his brain's uh, just well. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So anyway, he got well. Um, you, you see some of the pictures that are around in some of the books, and you'll see some that are dated 1942, 1945. The picture in my book where I'm there standing with my uncle is 1945. He looks good. He was. He'd get on the floor. He'd play with me. He taught me to play the mandolin. He taught me to swim. That's not some guy whose mind is addled with syphilis. And by the way, everybody back then had syphilis. <laughs> well, I didn't. And by the way, the common story is he died in prison of syphilis. I know. I know. <laughs> well, I in the know. Ben Gazzara movie, he dies by the swimming pool of syphilis. No, he was in, in 19, Christmas of 1946. I was with him at the Prairie Avenue house. He and May were fine. And they went back to um, Miami because they were going to have a big birthday party for him. And um, I guess while he was in Chicago, he got pneumonia. And he got very, very sick when he got back to Miami. So my father, my grandfather and I got on a train and we went and we spent some time with him. We thought he was going to die and we were kind of saying our goodbyes. Well, he rallied. He, he got better. So my my grandfather stayed there, and my father took me back to Chicago on the train because I had to go to school. And one morning, and May told me this, one morning um, he got up and he wanted to go swimming, and he had two male nurses, and the male nurses said, yep, you know, you're well enough, you could get in your pool today. So he got in the shower, and they were drying him off. And Al always wanted his body talcum powdered. He's smelled of this wonderful talcum powder all the time. So they were powdering them down and splat. He fell flat. Wow. A heart attack? No. It was a stroke. And I think it was from the chemicals. From what they, they gave him. And another um, myth that is out there is nobody showed up to his funeral. I was at his funeral. And believe me, people lined the streets in the city of Chicago to see Al Capone's body pass by. Isn't that strange? Well, what's also strange is the... I don't know what the right image is of Al Capone because so much of us are influenced by the books, the film versions, the De Niro Correct. versions where he's, he's violent as hell. Even Boardwalk Empire has got another image of him. Do any Correct. of these images match who you knew? Um, one thing I want to say about Boardwalk Empire is they can't kill him off there, can they? <laughs> no, no, they can't. That's the one thing you knew. <laughs> they, that's one that was thing the young Al. Stephen Graham, you know, he has a, a, a part for as long uh, as yeah. he wants. <laughs> that's good. They yeah. sure can't kill can't him write off. him out of the show. No, no can't it, write it, him out of the show. Um, little bits and pieces, yeah. I mean, he was a very stern man. I remember one time I was with him. And we were playing and doing things in, in the Prairie Avenue house, and there was a knock at the door, and my aunt went to open it and came and told Al that some of his business people needed to see him. And he got in this chair, and I watched it. And this man transformed it from a big teddy bear to a stiff, cold, hard-looking man. And I mean, he was almost scary. And those guys came in, and he took care of his business, and those guys left, and he became a different person. Did he have any temper problems? Yes, they all did. All the Capones did. Okay. They, they certainly did. I mean, that's 
I think that's Italian. <laughs> well, we're going to take a short 60-second break. We'll be right back and hear more about Uncle Al Capone on True Crime Uncensored. Some things in life that just don't go together. But listen to this. You take one drop-dead gorgeous woman. You add an incredibly wealthy, handsome man. You put them together. They have all the money, clothes, jewels, drugs, alcohol they could possibly want. Well, then you throw in a Glock 9mm handgun. It's all good fun until someone gets killed. Fatal Beauty, the shocking true story of beautiful Rhonda Glover, who put 13 bullets from a Glock 9mm into her boyfriend of 15 years, Jimmy Jost. Oh, she said he was abusive. The friend said he was passive. Either way, he was dead. Fatal Beauty, available January 2011 from Pinnacle True Crime by Burl Bear, living legend true crime author, and trust me, he's brilliant, I know it, because I am Burl Bear, author of Fatal Beauty. Hi, I'm Johnny Cosmo, author of The Catcher in the Rye and The Player's Guide to Playing. Hey, listen to this. If you own an iPhone or ride a plastic pony in front of Albertsons, you're no longer tied to your computer. And I know a thing or two about getting untied. You're now free to roam and take the Outlaw Radio Gang everywhere you go. So grab an Outlaw Radio iPhone application. The smoke and drink and interrupting 24-hour party that you follow now follows you. Your iPhone is now the easiest way to stay connected with your friends on Outlaw Radio. That's right, the demons of decadence. Change the way you listen to radio seven days a week. Now available free at the iTunes App Store. Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Ah, yes, I am the legendary Burl Bear, the man of the lawyer chair, Don Woldman. You can always find out what's coming up on the show by going to our website, which is outlawcrime.com. Next week, a double-barreled whammy. We have former Jewish meth whore Amy Dresner. That's a mouthful. <laughs> she's still Jewish, no longer does meth, and whether or not she's a whore, we'll decide when she's on the show. We'll take a vote. And joining her is Peter Christ. Remember Peter Christ of Leap? Sure. Sure. What a great double bill. It's a very strange combination. Oh, yeah. Well, when I talked to Leap and told them what what, what I wanted, they went, oh, yeah, Peter's perfect for that. Wow. Wow. (laughs) He's excited about doing it. It's going to be fun. Uh, We're talking to Deidre Capone. Hi there, Deidre. Hello, it's Deirdre. Deirdre, pardon me. Deirdre. (laughs) That's okay. All right. Uh, Now I'm now in trouble with a Capone. That makes me nervous. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah, you better watch it. <laughs> Uncle Al is out of prison now for a few years. What does he do, going to the waste disposal business? What is he doing, as far as you know? No, he was just absolutely retired. That's all he did. That was enough. Um, yeah, he, 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 he was finished. Um, he made a promise to his son and to his wife. Um, when he was in Alcatraz, though, he did have a plan that he wanted to open up this auto um Chopping business. No, that they would build automobiles in Florida. He, he had this whole plan that had the city and employ all these people and things like that. He but, wanted to create Capone Motors. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. That okay. would have been nice. Get t- Lake Capone, take you for a ride. <laughs> they had slogans now. I know you two guys <laughs> like the cars. Did you look at the, co- the cover of my book? Yeah. Of course. Look in the pocket. Okay, well, the book hasn't arrived. My my pocket oh. had no cigar in it. <laughs> oh. the, book, the book didn't arrive yet. You're kidding. No, we're not No, kidding, we had to fake it by just scouring the web. Oh, my goodness. I sent those out the, the day I got that address. So yeah. please. They probably I, arrived I, today knowing the U.S. Postal Service. They knew oh, you were going to be on, so they held it and probably smoked whatever cigar was in the flat. Well, on the cover of my book, or if you've you know, gone on the web... You'll see this picture, and he's got three cigars in his pocket. I well, never. Th- th- that's always any... the image we've had of Al Capone: was a cigar in his mouth. Absolutely, every single one of those Capone boys constantly had a big stogie in their fingers, and it was always chewed on the end. And they also smoked indoors, <laughs> and, and in restaurants and bars. In restaurants and bars, and they used to blow smoke rings, and I would catch them on my finger. Well, that's... Uh, those days are gone, especially, especially in California. Unfortunately. Oh, yeah. So tell me, what was a family dinner like with Uncle Al? Oh, my. It would last for hours. <laughs> for hours? I mean, yes, absolutely. It would last. Well, first of for all, hours. Who, co- who cooked the dinner? Was he one of these that liked to make the spaghetti sauce, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? Believe it or not, his mother, his sister, and then some other people would come in. You know, like a few days before the Sunday, and help make the pasta, help make the breads, and things like that. But it was an. Um, I wish. We had technology that they could hook electrodes up in my brain, and I can visualize this, and I can hear their voices in my head, and it could be recorded and shown to everybody. I would love that. <laughs> wow. You know, I'm limited. I'm limited to how my words work. I mean, I did the best job I could with describing things in that book so that people could hear the sounds and smell the smells. But... The, the dinners were amazing. Um, but once you got there, all the curtains were pulled. You didn't know if it was night or day outside. because Or if there were Al, cops outside with binoculars. Cops outside with binoculars, and when Al Capone was there, there were bodyguards. Well, they had to be, I would think. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, I found but, it was, you know, the fact that the mayor of Chicago, back when all this was, was going on before Al went to prison, was pretty was pretty much in, in Al's pocket. Well, they all were in that era. They all were. Well, like he said, you know, um, if I'm guilty of, you know, providing these services, then the people who avail themselves of the services are as guilty as I am. And like he said, some of the biggest swells in Chicago drank his liquor, went to his gambling places, and used his women. Well, what's kind of interesting about the is that he put Cicero on the map as a wide-open town, as a suburb of Chicago. And when I was in high school, it was still the same way. It was full of all kinds of gambling, behind closed doors, B-girls, you name it. That's what it was, Cicero. You know, and the three things that my family was convicted of are now all legal. (laughs) What, evading income tax? (laughs) (laughs) Well, a lot of, uh, it seems like... A lot of our politicians do that today, don't they? <laughs> well, some get caught. Yeah. yeah but that's always the catch-all. If they can't bust you on something else, they always do that. But 
when they do catch these politicians on that, do they ever serve time like my family? No. Well, no, no. but they were using that as an excuse. They had an agenda, obviously, with yeah. Al. Because, uh, I mean, or, when you have these murders coming down and they figure that Al gave the order, Al did. Well, it's similar to, like, with Manson, who wasn't there when uh, Tegla Bianca murders, but they, yeah. so they put him up to it. Al was conveniently in Florida at the time. Yeah, he was a different person out of the house. You know, Al Capone had nothing to do with the Valentine's Day massacre. Now, that's I he, interesting. I, I thought he ordered it. Absolutely not. What's your source of information, and how did it happen? My family told me. My uncle, Maddie, who was the youngest brother of Al, told me exactly what happened. I was afraid to say anything because I needed proof before I put this in my book. And I finally got the proof. There is, there is a book out there by the name of Alcatraz, and it's written by Dr. David Ward, who has since become a very good friend of mine. But the, my, what my family told me is it was done by the police, and the feds put the police up to it to make it By look the like police a to just knock off gangsters? Well, yeah, they, they were stealing liquor. They were stealing liquor out of Moran's warehouse. Right. And uh, one of Moran's men caught them stealing all this liquor. And then Moran said he was going to go to the police chief and turn these guys in. Were the police on the take? Oh, yeah. I think so. I that love I don't Chicago. Have proof of. <laughs> I, <laughs> I do too. But that I don't have proof of. What I have proof of is that my uncle Maddie saw them. They they saw the police car, they saw the police get out of the car, and they heard the shots. So that's what happened. Well, it was always said that they dressed up like police so that the guys no, would put wouldn't. their hands up and, you know, go against the wall before getting machine gun. No, they, why would they dress up as police? <laughs> well, they speak to score the police. We, we borrow some of your uniforms. Yeah, central, I mean, central costume. Who's going to see them except the people that are going to be dead. I mean, why dress up as police? Well, that way they could uh, do a phony arrest and bring them into a warehouse. They're already in the warehouse. They're all in there. Interesting. You want to know another, another factoid? Sure. Um, my, my children did not know who the, about the DNA in their body until they were teenagers. When you say DNA and in your body, meaning what? That they were Capones. That they were Capones? That they were Capones. They didn't know it. But and one of the main reasons that I didn't tell them is that my husband's uncle, so a brother of my husband's father, married a girl who was the only sister of John May, the mechanic who was killed in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Ah. So I was afraid that my kids would, you know, say something to her at one time without thinking about it. So I purposely didn't say anything to them until later, after we had moved out of Chicago. But her brother also confirmed he knew John May would come home and say the cops were stealing the alcohol. Huh. Well, they were more than just a little on the take then. They were to take it in one hand and steal it with the other. What What's about yourself, Deirdre? Uh, you obviously are growing up with the Capone name. To what extent mm -hmm. did that single you out 
the biggest trauma in my life occurred. Um, Al Capone died on my seventh birthday. He died on January 25th, 1947. And I am, a, you know, a cat, we are a Catholic family. Well, my family needed something to look forward to. And seven-year-old Catholic children make their first communion, usually on Mother's Day, so in, in May, when they're in second grade. So my family needed something special to look forward to after going through losing Al Capone. So they outfitted me, everything else. The entire family, even Sonny and his wife, came to church to watch me make my first communion. Back in 1947, the big Chicago newspapers had neighborhood editions that would come out every every day, you know, the South Shore edition of the Tribune, South Shore edition of the Daily News. Well, they would print anything that they could find, and they would tell you what's going on, you know, in the Mother's Club and all these social things. So they printed on Monday that the students of St. Philip Neri School made their first communion. And Deirdre Capone, with the entire Capone family in attendance, made hers. When I was in school, my family was trying to protect me, and I they put my father's middle name down as my last name. Oh, really? Everybody, everybody knew me as Deirdre Gabriel. Well, they printed Deirdre Capone, which is my legal name. How many Deirdres do you think that there were on the south side of Chicago in 1947? Oh, boy. Not a lot. No. And how many went to St. Philip Neri School? So what happens after you go through communion? Two, two weeks after that, every single child in my second grade class except me was invited to this girl's birthday party. I went 12 years to school because I went through high school. 12 years with kids that would have nothing to do with me. So you were ostracized. Nothing. Absolutely. I know what it's like to be a black girl in, in the 40s, because <laughs> that's how yeah. I was treated. Yeah. How long did that continue? All the way through school. High school also? High school also, because it was on the same campus. <laughs> then, when I finally got out, um, I, I got my first job downtown Chicago at an insurance company. And when you work for an insurance company, after you're there three months, you are eligible for a small life insurance policy. So after I was there for three months, I had to fill out the forms, and of course, it had to be your legal name. And so I put down Deirdre Marie Capone. And so about three weeks later, um, my boss called me into my office. Oh, we have some questions from the underwriters here. (laughs) Yeah. So he called me into his office and sat me down, and I thought he was going to do dictation because I was starting to take dictation for him. So I brought my steno pad with me, and he said, tell me your name. And I said, Deirdre Gabriel. He says, no, tell me your real name. So I told him, and he said, are you any relation to Al Capone? And I said, yes, he was my uncle. He says, I'm sorry, you can't work here. You're fired. Oh. (laughs) Different era in terms of wrongful termination, I'll tell you that. Exactly. I mean, they can't do something like that today. But see, this was 1957. At that time, you know, the mafia was starting to launder their money, and they were getting into car dealerships and insurance companies and, you know. They didn't want any taint. And restaurants and everything you can think of. Exactly. Record distributing. Exactly. Except they call themselves the syndicate. And this 
insurance company couldn't take a chance with their investors. So I was fired. Ooh. Too late now to go back and get back pay, I guess. Yeah. Did you st- and, did you stay in Chicago after that incident? Or yeah, I did. How many years? Um, all your life or what? No. Finally, um, after I married, my husband had an opportunity to start a business up in Minnesota. So in 1972, I, I skated. And so help me God, my wings grew after that. Well, it's an just, interesting I, choice of words, I escaped. I escaped. Because that's the way I felt. I felt like I would... I, I felt... I had no opportunity there, not at all. I want to just take just a moment to have you focus on my father. Just imagine what it was like for my father. If it was that bad for me, what was it like for my father? And I'm now equating or trying to to explain things to people in a way that they can understand. Look what Bernie Madoff's son resorted to. Mm-hmm. And his father swindled people out of money. My family gave people what they wanted, but still, my father couldn't bear up under it. That's why he committed suicide together. Correct. That was four years after Al got out. No, he committed, no. Um, no, that would be 11 got, years after he got out. Correct, because he, he, he committed suicide at the end of 1950, just before my 11th birthday. So it, it was about 11 years after Al got out. And was this because of the hounding, because of the name, and uh, difficult, was it difficult to get employment, or was he mocked or isolated? My father had the role in the Capone family exactly like the role that John Fitzgerald Kennedy played in the Kennedy family. He was the one, he was brilliant, and he was the one that was going to bring respectability back to the Capone name. He was schooled in the finest schools, Notre Dame, Loyola, uh, went to DePaul University, um, passed, he was a lawyer, he passed the bar, but the Chicago bar uh, would not admit him. Oh. So then he was trying to find other things to do. I mean, he was raised as the young prince, the heir apparent. He was the firstborn of that second generation. Sonny came along uh, almost two years later, but Sonny was born with the ravages of syphilis, so he couldn't hear. He had a hearing problem. He had a learning disability also. So he could not assume that role. My father was the one that assumed that role. We've got to take a quick break. We'll be right back to hear more about Al Capone on True Crime Uncensored. There are some things in life that just don't go together. But listen to this. You take one drop-dead gorgeous woman. You add an incredibly wealthy, handsome man. You put them together. They have all the money, clothes, jewels, drugs, alcohol they could possibly want. Well, then you throw in a Glock 9mm handgun. It's all good fun until someone gets killed. Fatal Beauty, the shocking true story of beautiful Rhonda Glover, who put 13 bullets from a Glock 9mm into her boyfriend of 15 years, Jimmy Jost. Oh, she said he was abusive. The friend said he was passive. Either way, he was dead. Fatal Beauty, available January 2011 from Pinnacle True Crime by Burl Bear, living legend true crime author. And trust me, he's brilliant, I know it, because I am Burl Bear, author of Fatal Beauty. Hi, I'm Johnny Cosmo, author of The Catcher in the Rye and The Player's Guide to Playing. 
Hey, listen to this. If you own an iPhone or ride a plastic pony in front of Albertsons, you're no longer tied to your computer. And I know a thing or two about getting untied. You're now free to roam and take the Outlaw Radio Gang everywhere you go. So grab an Outlaw Radio iPhone application. The smoke and drink and interrupting 24-hour party that you follow now follows you. Your iPhone is now the easiest way to stay connected with your friends on Outlaw Radio. That's right, the demons of decadence. Change the way you listen to radio seven days a week. Now available free at the iTunes App Store. And now, back to True Crimes with Burl Bear and Don Waldman. And our guest, Deidre. Got it right that time. Deidre Capone. Yeah. Now, wait a second. You said Sonny was born with uh, with syphilis. Where did he get that? From his father. And his mother. <laughs> and his mother. It's a family affair, huh? <laughs> you know, yeah. m- m- more myths uh, that I want to see if you can verify whatever. There was a movie that was very famous in the 50s and 60s about the comedian Joey Lewis, who supposedly had his throat slashed by orders of Mr. Capone. Any knowledge of what happened there? Yes, and it was not um, Al Capone. As Why did they attribute everything to Al? That's what I don't understand. Well, at one time, you know, Al Capone said they'd blame me for the Chicago Fire if they could. <laughs> you know, they blamed him for everything. It was a vendetta against the Capone family. Um, my husband and I were in Las Vegas, and we went into Joey Lewis, and he sat me down, and we had a very long conversation and that is in my book. And yes, his face was cut, um, but the the owner of the the um, salon saloon or whatever it is that he was performing in did it on his own. Al Capone did not, you know, give the orders to do that. So Al Capone paid his hospital bill, paid all the doctor bills to get him well again, and then gave him a job. Interesting. Well, not that there weren't enough things supposedly in, in Al's career and Al's past that one could be critical of. And as you do say, you don't make him out to be a, a necessarily even a good guy. Maybe no, a, I can't. A loving uncle. But uh, going back into his past, supposedly he had committed some murders on his own. That uh, he was skillful at isolating and killing his enemies when they became too powerful. A typical Capone murder, says one source, consisted of men renting an apartment across the street from the victim's residence and gunning him down when he stepped outside. Mm-hmm. These were back in the, the earlier days, uh, prior, of course, to the, uh, the late St. Valentine's Day massacre, etc. This so, was probably not discussed over dinner. No, I think they, no. Kept, they kept these things kind of like in The Godfather. Was, business. You know, don't, don't ask about my business. You know, don't, <laughs> we, we don't talk well, about it know, all. If you want to equate that period in our history, why don't you equate it with the Wild West? I mean, it was almost the same. You steal my cattle, you steal my women, you're dead. You know, you you break your omerta, you break your word, you're dead. That's an interesting and, analogy because it was wide open in terms of they didn't like what you were doing, you were history, and they were exactly. doing it in the streets. And they would do it to each other. Can you... Can you possibly imagine how many attempts on Al Capone's life or my grandfather's life there were? At one point, you know, there was Tommy guns that were shot into, you know, the hotel lobby where he was. And Frankie Rio threw him down on the ground and saved his life. Mm. 
Well, you know I mean, what? And then the flip side of it is I heard stories that he was trying to buy the Chicago Cubs. He was trying to buy the Chicago Cubs. And, <laughs> he liked baseball. He, you know town. what? He was going to bring Satchel Page in from that black team that he was on, the Crawfords. Wow, he was going to bring Satchel Page in and make him the first major league black baseball player. And that was many, many, many years before Satchel Page actually got into the majors. Correct. Correct. I mean, it was just... I think you meant Jackie Robinson, didn't yeah, you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, I also meant Satchel Page. Yeah. Uh, nobody knew his age, but he didn't get into baseball until he was like 40 years old. Exactly. He was an amazing baseball player. Amazing. The speed that he had, you know, at, at that age. And... And also, and also in the same vein, and I heard that uh, he wanted to have Babe Ruth be the manager player for the Cubs. Exactly. Say, <laughs> well, you know exactly. your stuff, Don. Chicago boy. Chicago boy. <laughs> well, you know, Leslie Charteris, uh, creator of The Saint, who wrote the book Saint in New York about the mob, etc. And he said, in those days, this is during Prohibition, he says, the, the gangsters protected the customers because they didn't want the customers angry. They didn't want the customers hurt. Their violence was pretty much confined to their own selves. Uh, yeah. Which is a big difference now. <laughs> we often talk about how much better Vegas was when the uh, Bob was running it before <laughs> the corporations you know, took over. Since I've been out and, and people know how to get in touch with me, you know, I've got a website, UncleAlCapone.com. I'm on Facebook. I, I have so many people that have gotten in touch with me. Deirdre, I want to tell you, my grandfather had a jewelry store in Cicero. And he paid your uncle's men to protect him, and he was never robbed. Interesting. Didn't he also have a house in Wisconsin, as I recall? Yes, he did, in Mercer, Wisconsin. Well, you know everything, Don. You're amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Good going, Don. Well, I didn't have to research this one. I grew up there. Yeah, boy. <laughs> That's what I'm getting yeah. at. He was sort of an icon in the city. Everybody knew all these stories. And periodically there'd be uh, articles written years after the fact. You're correct. And most of the information there is really not true so um, I just wanted the chance, I'm 71 there's no one else that can write this book, I wanted a chance for the people who are interested in Al Capone to see that there was a different person than all the other portrayals of him and then they could make up their own mind you know, I'm not going to whitewash anything. I'm not going to try to say, no, that never happened. Um, but I, I just want people to know that there is a human being by the name of Al Capone, and there is a Capone family that are really remarkable people. Now, not every member of the Capone family is thrilled and delighted with you doing this book, are they? No. I, well, you know what? That... Wall Street Journal article came out, and yeah. my cousin opened up her mouth, and I think she's sorry for it right now. Tell us about the but, Wall Street Journal article, because I don't think we're aware of it. I, I read it, but go ahead. Okay, so Don read it. Um, there there was a, a guy that, there's a, a very strange <laughs> man out there yes. by yes. the name of Chris Knight, who probably four years ago got my number and I don't know how he did and he, he is claiming that his father is the illegitimate son of Al Capone why uh, <laughs> licensing there's always a, there's always a motive behind these kind of stories 
Well, the motive is what I found out is you, you were talking about some guy that was on your show that licenses people long after right, they're dead. Yeah, right. Yeah. All right. He's already talked to that individual. And if, if Chris Knight can get away and, and somebody says, yes, that he is the illegitimate son of Al Capone, he can then go in and set up that licensing thing and be the benefit of all that money. Ah. Yeah. So I of... can't. Because I'm not a direct descendant. There's no way that I could do it. Now, it would take some DNA testing to validate his claim. Well, what he wants to do is he wants to dig up Al Capone's body and test the DNA. That'll be an interesting court order. Well, what I'm trying to tell the judge, and all right, you're, you're the lawyer here now, so help me out. Um, I think the first thing that he should do is prove that he is indeed the son of his father. So dig his father up, test their two DNA, and make sure that they match, and then test his father's DNA against Al Capone. Is there actually an application in court to exhume the body? Yes. That's ugly. Yes. You know how awful that would be? If they if they opened up his tomb, there would be artists there there would be relics sold on eBay around the world. Yeah, if they can get him out of there, sure. Hair, pieces of his suit, his shoes, everything, his rosary, everything that was on his body would be sold somewhere. Bones, everything. What, how horrible is that? Pretty bad. I I think your approach is a good one. First, uh, do the DNA match on his father. Correct. And then match his father to Al. Hmm. Let's see how far that goes. Who's the ostensible mother? I'm. No, well, he claims no it was May. He he said it was May Capone, who was Al's wife. May, I won't go into it right now. May was unable to have children. May was not Sonny's birth mother. Well, that's a good way of stopping any exhumation process. It won't stop. He's got a lawyer who's trying to make a name for himself in Chicago, and you know there, there is. I see things being settled in court today that just make me want to throw up. I mean, the, the judge right now and, and the lawyer that is representing him says everybody should have the right to check out their heritage. Chris Knight's father was adopted. This is a, just an ugly, this is ugly getting, story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I see nothing but nothing but surus, as we say in Italy. <laughs> oh my God! I mean, I I want the public to know about this, and you know, I'm I've been fighting it myself single handedly for years now. But and well, then, are there other family members besides yourself that are fighting this? Now they are, and now Al's um, Sonny's kids are backing me on this. So we're all working together to do whatever we possibly can to prevent this. Chris Knight has presented uh, a DNA report that was done by mail. So that's not going to work. Not by mail. No, it's not going to work. It was done by mail. Who knows what saliva was? Maybe he took one of his friends that is. 
No, you, you have to have an authenticated no, you, yeah. process to even get started. Yeah, there's a lab called Adentagene in Houston that's uh, and there's one security of the big involved. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're not going to do it by mail. Well, this is the one that he has presented, and yes, whatever he presented does have um, Italian blood of unknown origin. I don't know what that means, but there could be any Italian. Any Italian. So anyway, this guy is is pursuing this, and he has already talked to those people that license people long after their death. Well, you got to give him credit for his tenacity of having a money-making yeah. idea. Oh, yeah. But, you know, he has no proof. He has absolutely no proof of anything. He says, as a matter of fact, his father didn't even say anything to him. It was six months after his father died, according to Chris Knight, that he was talking to a friend of his father's in New York. And this friend said, oh, whoa, whoa, by the way. Whoa, 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 Hearsay, hearsay. is a basis for getting that kind of an order. That's not going to work. I hope not. Oh, thank you. I hope not. <laughs> 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 at least you're giving this woman some I mean, hope, Don. Once upon a time, oh, I help me. Help me. license help me. in Chicago, and I'm, uh, I'm ready to help dust me. it off on this one. <laughs> oh, man, I wish I had connections. You know, I... Wish you wish you were connected. <laughs> I wish I was connected. I get the boys on this one. <laughs> That's my fear. Yeah, they'll all come with their wheelchairs and come rolling out. Yeah, really. If there were any left? Any left around? Uh, this, you know, this this uh, this memoir of yours, Uncle Al Capone. Have uh, you been approached at all for any kind of like TV movie, a Lifetime movie, or anything like that? Yeah, that'd be very different. Yeah. Yeah, and there has been a couple of people, but. Um, and I, I just got contacted by um, somebody in Japan that wants the rights to translate this into Japanese. Oh, good. I've had that done. That's fun. You get, you yeah. get to find someone who can read it to you in Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote one book that's only in Japanese. I wrote it in English. They translated it. And, uh... <laughs> Yeah, that's kind of fun. Yeah, there might be a TV movie uh, for you in this, and uh, at least you've got the talk show circuit. You've been all the, all the big shows culminating, of course, with being on this one, which is the, the pinnacle of anyone's uh, <laughs> career. Yeah, you've gotten a lot of publicity on the book. Well, I hope so. I hope so. Um, as I said, CBS Sunday Morning um, has filmed me, and I just heard from the producer, and that's going to be on in the next couple of weeks. So that should also, you know, wake some people up. Yeah, it's a, it's a great book. I, from everything I can tell, and I'm so eager to read it. The minute it finally I, you know, I, just, I feel so <laughs> oh, bad. It's the U.S. I, Postal Service. I just received a Christmas package this week from England. Oh, <laughs> it went through U.S. Customs. Oh, dear. Well, I sent that out the minute that you, you know, gave me your address, so I, 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 I Nothing I can do about it. Yeah. But when it comes, enjoy it. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure we will. Uh, for those of you who are saying, "Well, where can I get this book?" It is now available, and it is called Uncle Al Capone, and it's got a lovely picture of him smiling and looking so charming. I understand you've got a lot of family photos in there too. A lot of family photos and a lot of family recipes. Ooh, re recipes. What you get? But the these, are these Uncle Al's recipes? These are food recipes. <laughs> Absolutely. They are 90 years old, and they are exactly the food that we would cook and he would eat. 
Fantastic. Well, Deirdre, yep. you have been just a delight to talk to. And the book is called Uncle Al Capone. It's the only book of that title, and you can order it online uh, directly from UncleAlCapone.com, or you can go to uh, uh, Books A Million or Amazon or any of those and get it. And uh, best of luck to you. And I hope everything works out well on this court thing, too. <laughs> oh, thank you. Just send me some energy and some of your legal <laughs> vibes. Consider it sent. Yes. Okay. Thanks Thank again. Thank you, gentlemen. Been wonderful. Been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, another side of a legend, huh? Yeah. Next week, as I said, uh, the interesting about the uh, law enforcement against prohibition. It didn't work at the time of Al Capone, and it's not working now. Never has worked. No, Peter Christ of uh, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, and in the uh, Lighten Up Lounge, well, in we person. Have, we had the, uh, from Leap, the former chief from Seattle. Yeah, one of our very first shows, right. Norm Stamper. Right. Yeah. Well, Peter Christ, uh, who's been on the show before, will be joining us, and live in the lounge will be uh, comedian uh, Amy Dressner. So it should be a lot of fun next uh, next week, right here Sounds on. Sounds like a circus. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of circus, when are they going to shoot that elephant out of the cannon again? I can't wait to hear <laughs> Oh, ladies and gentlemen, just when you thought it was safe, it's time for Magic Mad Allen and the Demons of Decadence, live from the Lighten Up Lounge, featuring, of course, Don, me, Johnny Cosmo, and a world of stars. Burberry. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Ladies and gentlemen, live from the soapily beautiful kills of Encino, California, nexus of the known physical universe, where industry and nature work hand in hand to create a better life for all of us. The following program, produced by Magic Man Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. I am the legendary Burl Bear, the program True Crime Uncensored. Joining me in the lovely Lighten Up Lounge, Howard Lapidus, famed television something or other, executive producer of Celebrity Rehab, and Dr. Drew's Life Changers. Uh, he also did Freddie Got Fingered. We'll never forgive, uh, forget him for that. Uh, Mark C.G. Boyer, fact checker extraordinaire. And pleasure to have back with us again, Deidre Marie Capone. How you doing? Great world. Good to be back with you. Hey, it's been such a, it's been almost a year. We had you on the show back in February, and uh, things have been going great for you with your, your book, Uncle Al Capone. Uh, you been getting any static about this? Oh, yeah, there's some. Um, you know, I was signing books out on Alcatraz. By the way, my book has been on the bestseller list many times, but I was out there signing books on Alcatraz. And I always greet the boats as they come over, and then after that I go up to the bookstore. And one of the rangers was telling me, the rangers always announce that I'm up there. And one of the rangers, you know, said, some woman said, oh, yeah, she's just trying to make money off of her, her name. It was like, no. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no. no. It seems more to me you're trying to set the record straight. As I always tell people, just a little side note, if you're on a speakerphone, uh, don't be on a speakerphone. <laughs> and if you're on a cell phone, speak right into that sucker and not on a blue thread. It's great that we can hear you, but we just want to kind of pump you up a little bit. The, okay. great, the great thing about this book that uh, I think is so wonderful and controversial is that you take a lot of the things that we thought we knew about Al Capone and we find out we didn't know a damn thing. <laughs> Well, you know, there's a hundred different books out there that have been written, and not a single one of those authors other than I ever knew him, ever saw him, ever heard him. And also there's another um, 
a bit of information. During those years, during the 20s, 30s, in the early 40s, anybody in any area of the rackets, anything to do with the rackets, would practice uh, uh, something that was called omerta. Omerta is a, an Italian word, and it literally means, you know, keep your mouth shut. Don't say nothing to nobody. I didn't see nothing. I saw nothing. I heard nothing. That's it. That's Omerta. So because of that, the personalities of those people that were in the rackets really was never known. You know, nobody ever talked about the things they liked to eat or the things they liked to wear, or, you know, any of that stuff. You just didn't know it. So, of course, all these authors, producers, have had free reign and they make things up. So I just wanted a chance to let people know, and if they're interested, that there was a human being by the name of Al Capone. There is a Capone family that really has good DNA. I'm not going to change anybody's perception of my family, but I just wanted an opportunity to to set some of the, the you know facts straight. Let me give a, a quote here from your Uncle Al. People who respect nothing dread fear. It is upon fear, therefore, that I have built up my organization. But understand me correctly, please. Those who work with me are afraid of nothing. Those who work for me are kept faithful. Not so much because of their pay as because they know what might be done with them if they broke faith. Correct. And that's what my grandfather told me. No... Every single person that got into any form of business with my uncle or my grandfather did it on their own choosing, and they knew the rules. I equate that section of our history to the Wild West. In the Wild West, if you wrestled somebody's cattle or you stole somebody's woman, you know, there was a consequence to pay. You know, the two cowboys would line up on either end of the street. Whoever drew first, you know, shot the guy and he went down. So in, in, in the rackets during the 20s, um, the mobsters, the politicians, and the police all worked together mm-hmm. to give the people what they wanted. You know, the politicians were buying votes, the police were getting their pockets lined with cash, you know, and the mobsters were able to sell their wares to the people that wanted them. It's not much different today. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I mean, a judge was never involved, a court was never involved, and my uncle needed to trust the people. He needed to know his back was covered. I was raised, your word is your bond, and family is everything. And that's the way they believed, and that's the way they lived their life, and that's the way I do it today. Uh, was that? This is Mark. Mark Boyer, uh, yeah. Paternal Hi, or Mark. paternal um, side of the family? Okay. Which one? Say that again, oh. Mark. Was that was that your was uh, your father Al's brother or sister? No, no. <laughs> your I'm father a, wasn't the oh. sister. <laughs> no. What? Um, okay. I, Mark, I am. Was, was it your mother or your father associated with Al? No, I'm a Capone, so it had to be my father. Okay. Because my last right, name makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> I know you were enamored. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't get that. 
I think he's got a crush on you. Deirdre, this is Howard. How are you? Yeah, the last time you did the oh, show, you, 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 you were, um, you, I think uh, the great Don Waldman was in the chair that I'm in now. Um, I've since had him removed. No, no, no yeah. <laughs> He's actually he's, okay. all, he's on the island of hiatus. Yes, uh, he is, for, for a, an extended period of time. I, we love Don, and we miss him. And um, I've since uh, kind of taken over the chair for a while. So uh, it's uh, I, I wasn't here last time. Uh, but what I've, I've found to be interesting is is not as much, you know, I've done an awful lot of reading about your uncle over the years and um, your grandfather. Uh, and you talk about how your grandfather, your uncle was uh, public enemy number one, your grandfather was public enemy number three. Correct. Who was number two? It was... Um Jack McGurney. Ah, okay. And four? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not testing. So, but but you were you were just a little 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 girl, a seven year old when little. he when he passed away. But he was with you for the first seven years of your memory. And you have to remember, we're we were a very close Italian family from immigrants. So, I mean, it was mandatory that we got together every Sunday for dinner, every holiday, every, you know, funeral, every wedding, whatever. And I was very, very close to Al's only sister, my aunt, Effie, and his youngest brother, uh, my uncle, Maddie. So every time we would get together, of course, the stories were told. Remember when this happened? Do you remember when he did this? You know, that kind of stuff. So that's why... My memory is so fresh. What's, what? what's the best the best memory you have that maybe we never heard about? About Al Capone? Mm-hmm. Um, well, when I fell out of the apple tree and he took care of me, um, probably one memory that I didn't put in the book and it will kind of maybe explain the person by the name of Alphonse Gabriel Capone is he would be his little boy self when he would be around his mother and he would be the big brother when he was around his sister and we were all together for some Sunday dinner and he's singing and joking around and um, the doorbell rang and my aunt went to the door and then she came back and told whispered something to Al. Al took his apron off, put on a suit jacket, went in the living room, and of course I followed because I'm this little girl, so I just followed him in there, and he sat in the chair, and then my aunt goes and opens up the door, and when he opens, she opens up the door, Al, cigar in the mouth, in his fingers, gets really straight and rigid in that chair, his facial, you know, features changed. He got the stare in his face. The people came in. They were talking Italian back and forth to one another. Then they go to leave and he sat there for a minute and took, you know, a couple of puffs off of his cigar. Then he got up, took off his jacket, went back in the kitchen and resumed normal activity. So it was like, you know, he had to put on a different face when the boys were around. So there you are, little girl, growing up. Uncle Al is your Uncle Al. It's family. There's all is well with the world. You have your Sunday dinners. Uh, and then Uncle Al uh, passed away. But then uh, how old were you? And what was he your... Died? F- f- you were, he died in, I think, you were seven, right? Yeah, 
Your seventh. He died on my seventh birthday. He died on January twenty fifth, nineteen forty seven. Um, another thing that wasn't he, wasn't he in prison at this point? No. 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 See, that's another misnomer. People think that he died in prison. He did not. People think he died of syphilis. He did not. He died of a massive stroke. Um, he, you know, there's, there's all kinds of myths. All the books that you read um, say he was born January 19th. He was not. He was born January 24th. So, um, you know, I was born January 25th. So we always kind of have that, that you know, connection um, to one another. But he died of a massive stroke, and I believe it was from the treatment that he was being given in Alcatraz. There's another thing that, you know, I really want the world to know. Um, the only thing that Al Capone was ever convicted of was income tax evasion. Mm-hmm. When the income tax, you know, provision was passed and it became law, there was a provision in that law that you did not have to declare any income that you earned if you earned it illegally. And the reason for that, it would tend to incriminate oneself. And if you put down, you you know, earn $5,000 yeah, gambling. Would, yeah, violate the Fifth Amendment. Correct. They'd come and they'd, they'd arrest you. So my grandfather and my uncle didn't know. And nobody sent you little papers and made it easy for you to pay your taxes back then. And less than 10% of the population even had to file income taxes back then. Now, Al Capone was convicted of income tax evasion. My grandfather was evicted, convicted the same amount of money for the same year. Al got 11 years. My grandfather three. What was that? Say that again. My grandfather got three years in um, conviction. Al got 11 then he was filing appeals and of course they wouldn't allow him you know to have an appeal so they sent him to atlanta he was one day away from going back to cook county chicago illinois on a writ of habeas corpus because his lawyers found that they had new evidence um that somebody lied on the witness stand and president hoover called warden johnston who was the first warden of alcatraz and said, if you want the world to know about this maximum security prison, which, by the way, was the first one in the United States, then transfer Al Capone out there and all the newspapers all over the world would carry it. That's exactly what happened. There was no reason for him to be out, you know, in a maximum security prison. And the way they did it, they took him, they put him on a... a a car, a train car. He was not allowed to get off that train car. They took it to Oakland, California. They put the whole train car on a barge, took him out to Alcatraz Island, and the first step on land after he left Atlanta was on Alcatraz. When I went out for the first time, there's a sign that says from Warden Johnston, Alcatraz was created to incarcerate irredeemable men. Now, that was not Al Capone. You know, Robert Stroud, the birdman of Alcatraz, yeah, that was the place for him, but not Al Capone. Al Capone got out in 1939, 
from 1939 to the time he died in 1947, you will not find any account of him doing anything wrong. I guess he was redeemable, wasn't he? Well, I mean, look... You know, the stories are the stories are the stories, and he's your uncle, and you're going to say, yeah. you know, you're going to... It sounds like you're touting the family tree, uh, you know, like, you know, he was put in jail for an excessive amount of time uh, versus, you know, the, the crime that he supposedly committed, and, you know, if his time went on, he didn't really commit a crime because it was, the, uh, you know, the Fifth Amendment protected him. Or, or would have protected him. Let me ask you this. How old were you? You were seven when you heard he was a bad guy? My own family was in attendance, and we all went back to Grandma's house for a big celebration and a picnic. Back then, in those days, there would be local editions of the big Chicago papers. Mm-hmm. And on Monday, the local edition of the Tribune and the local edition of the Herald American ran a story saying that the students at St. Philip near High School made their first communion, and Deirdre Capone, with the entire Capone family in attendance, made hers. Mm-hmm. Now, when my family, when my father entered me in school, he was trying to protect me, so he entered me by using his middle name as my last name. So all my, all my classmates knew me as Deirdre Gabriel. But how many Deirdres do you think were in Chicago in 1947? let alone in St. Philip near a school. Six. <laughs> One. One. So yeah, no, two weeks later, every single classmate of mine was invited to this girl's birthday party, but not me. Mm. But did you know yet that he was a... Did you? What did you hear? Did, you know, what kinds of things were you hearing at age seven that Uncle Al was being accused of? Well, I read all of these accounts. All of the, you know, accusations, you know, they had people killed, he, he you know, was the creator of the St. Valentine's Day mur- um, murder. I mean, all of these things that he did, and I, I could read, I read them all, and that's when I started to wonder what in the world was going on. I kind of had a suspicion anyway, because when you would go over to the Prairie Avenue house... If Al was there in attendance, there'd be armed guards at the front and the back door, and all the drapes would be drawn on the first level. You know, even as a little kid, you you know, you knew something was strange. Well, you know, do you, do you think that your uncle was guilty of multiple murders, or at least ordering them? I I think so. Okay. I'm sure that there was. Um, but, you know, in some of the research that I've done, there was more murders in the newspaper industry and, of course, in the you know police game than there was in the mob um, world. But, yeah, if somebody gave their word and then they broke their word, there, there was retaliation. You know, but my, grand, my grandfather swore to me, boys, um, on my father's grave, his only child, his only son's grave, he said, Deirdre, no innocent person was ever harmed. No woman was ever made to do anything that she did not want to do. And no child's life was ever... Innocent person based on what, Deirdre? 
<laughs> no one ever held a gun to anybody's head and told them to buy booze. Based on, uh, Correct. Based on a court of law or based on a court of Al Capone? Let me give you a quote here from Al Capone. Howard. Well, based on the court of Al Capone, because that was my grandfather's, I'm quoting him. Yeah, let me give you a quote right here from Al Capone. All I ever did was sell beer and whiskey to our best people. All I ever did was supply a demand that was pretty popular. Why, the very guys that make my trade good are the ones that yell the loudest about me. Some of the leading judges use this stuff. Nobody wanted prohibition. This town voted six to one against it. Someone had to throw some liquor at that thirst. Why not me? I'm sick of the job. It's a thankless one, full of grief. He's right. The country wanted booze, and I organized it. Why should I be called public enemy? Well, because he killed people, Burl. Well, that's. I mean, Joe Kennedy was uh, was uh, hawking booze. Same thing. But he wasn't killing. Was Joe Kennedy killing people? Of course. He was. Hell yes. Absolutely. But I I did a research paper one time in high school, and I took the Capone family, the Rockefeller family, the Kennedy family, and the Ford family, and laid them out. Their origins were all the same. The reason that you don't hear these terrible things, because a male descendant got into a position where they had an opportunity to purge the public records and to bring respectability back to the family name. My father was earmarked for that. He was a brilliant man, firstborn of the new generation, went all through school, took his bar exam, passed it. But the Chicago Bar Association would not admit him because he was a Capone. There was a vendetta in Chicago against Al Capone, against the Capone. Who led that vendetta? Who was leading that vendetta? Well, it was a group of businessmen. They called them the Secret Six, but Colonel Rutherford McCormick was part of it. Talk to us about that. I'm, I'm, this is fascinating. Of course, he owned the Chicago Tribune. Okay. And so what he started to do is make sure all these things were put in the newspaper to poison the public's mind. My grandfather and my uncle opened up the first soup kitchen in the country right after the 1929 crash. He fed thousands of people every day for over 330 days. And the people loved him. He would he would give money to people, get, you know, send their kids to, to school or, you know. I mean, he made a lot of money, but I'll tell you, he gave a lot of his money away. He was planning to run for, for mayor of Chicago because of all the corruption that he saw. He wanted a chance to get in there and to clean things out. He, you know, he offered his services to find a Lindbergh. Yes, uh, that's quite true. There's a famous you know, quote from him about that, about how kidnapping is one of the worst things in the world, and anything he could do to help find correct. that kid he'd do. And he probably would have found it, you know, but if you go to see the movie, J. Edgar, you'll see that they do say that Capone offered to do that, and, and you know, Hoover decided that he was going to do it himself, and the Lindberghs didn't like Hoover, didn't like his tactic at all. I mean, I think Capone would have done a better job. Anyway, he was planning... Well, excuse me, dude, we have to take a 60-second break. We'll be right back. This is fascinating. Uncle Al Capone is the book, bestseller. We'll be right back on True Crime Uncensored. Hi, this is the legendary Burl Bear. 
And if there's one thing my five years on Outlaw Radio has taught me, it's that nobody's perfect. In fact, that's the title of my brand new collection of short stories. Nobody's perfect. Yes, short stories about people with all manner of human imperfections. Just because they're short stories doesn't mean they're about Ralph or Jimmy the Printer. No, they're about all sorts of strange people. And, well, it's a bargain at only 99 cents on Kindle or Nook. More, of course, if you buy it in paperback, but 99 cents electronically on Kindle or Nook for Nobody's Perfect. Don't just listen to people who are imperfect. Read about people who are imperfect. In my new book, Nobody's Perfect by Burl Bear. Trust me, you'll enjoy it because, well, it's not perfect and neither are you. And now, back to our regularly scheduled programming sooner or later. Back to True Crime Uncensored with Burl Bear and Howard Lapidus. Don't forget Mark C.G. Boyer. Featuring Mark C.G. Boyer. <laughs> and I think sometimes Marie Mackey. And sometimes Marie Mackey Esquire. You all. Who produces this show, anyway? Produced by Magic Matthew Allen. I wonder who produces him. Who in turn is produced by Lori Downey Jr. Ah. I am the legendary Burl Bear. Howard Lapidus is here. Mark Boyer on the phone. Deirdre Capone, author of Uncle Al Capone, a fascinating book, a fascinating woman. And there's some darn good recipes in the book, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. If you want, I have those those cookies. Those cookies taste like anybody you know. <laughs> so so cooking was a big deal with your family and with, uh, oh, with your uncle. They're Italians. Well, of course. They're well, Italians, of course. Everything centers around food. Food is love. Food is medicine. And so everything centered around food. What was his best dish? Do you remember? I know it may be tough. But... No. The best dish was, and I always called it this, baked lasagna. Mm-hmm. All lasagna is baked. Yeah, well, but the, the recipe's in the book. Yeah. Ah, okay. And there are 150-year-old recipes. They didn't let me, let me guess. Things. Noodles, cheese, and sauce. <laughs> I think you might be onto something, Mark. I make a mean lasagna. I'll compare it to Al Capone's, but I I will not compare it to Al Capone's. No, not if he's around. No. (laughs) No, Deidre, you you kind of make me feel like you're defending your uncle, and he didn't do anything wrong. Oh, no. I'm getting that that vibe from you. No, 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 no. That's not it at all, because I I mean, I'm not stupid. Um, I I don't want bad at all. I just want to say he was not a monster. He was a mobster. And he's not as black as people make him out to be. So I just wanted the chance to tell a different side, a softer side. I'm not trying to to make him out to be a saint. He wasn't. But you know, there was a business. I mean, the United States government, you know, decided oh, you know, one night now liquor is is illegal and that was the roaring 20s and was roaring for a number of reasons women were bobbing their hair and shortening their skirts you know jazz was coming into being and everything revolved around liquor people wanted liquor the people in the hills could make their own the people in the cities needed somebody to get it for them and there was there was an Al Capone counterpart in every city in the United States, 
And Al Capone didn't even run all of Chicago. He ran a small part of Chicago. But why did we hear about Al Capone? Why did Good he become press. the most famous Good guy? ink. Well. Because they, at the Secret Six businessmen, wanted to bring him down. And they wanted to bring him down for two reasons. Number one, Al and my grandfather were asked to be part of an organization called the Trilateral Commission. And this is an organization that funds um, national banks. They, they, you know, they fund the Federal Reserve. They fund the, the different banks in, in different countries. And my, my grandfather didn't trust it, and he didn't trust banks. And so he refused to be part of that. And the second reason that they wanted to bring him down is he was Italian. You know, the Italians at that time were the last to be hired, the first to be fired. Right. My grandfather and my uncle were the first Italian millionaires in the United States. And nobody's ever thought of them that way. Well, they, we never really got to count the money properly. <laughs> I didn't either. <laughs> I didn't either. Yeah, but that, that is something that people do tend to forget. And that is any time any particular uh, minority reaches above a certain percentile, they stop being pets and start being threats. And uh, I grew up in a town where it went through that. Uh, I grew up in Walla Walla, Washington, which is where they sent people in the witness protection program. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why wow, how you that wound is, up getting why well, that getting, explains you, Burl. No, no uh, that's how you wound up getting the Italian uh, actually contingent in that town. And when it began to get over a certain percentage, the prejudice and persecution of Italians began. Correct. And uh, just as the Irish went through it, the Italians went through it, the, the Jews, of course, went through it, <laughs> as we well know. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's what, the blacks. Yeah, and, the and, blacks and, went through it. Yeah. Any time you get past that, the point where you're pets from pet to threat. Yeah. Was Capone Costa Nostra, or was he in his own business? No, that's another myth that I, I just want to educate people. Um, they were not part of the mafia. The mafia were Sicilian. The black handers who were the extortion experts were Sicilian. You needed to be Sicilian to be a part of that. And Al Capone, I mean, we're not Sicilian, we're Italian. And so, the mafia actually started New Orleans first in the United States. Say that again, I'm sorry. They started New Orleans, the first city in America. Who did? Costa Nostra? Yeah. Mafia, oh, New I Orleans, so. yeah. Because the food okay. was so damn yeah, good. The food was so damn good there. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's, yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. Oh, the food's unbelievable. Yeah. Oh, forget about the mafia. <laughs> Just the food, food alone was a good reason to go there. Uh, one thing I want to get in, there's one of the other myths that I always wondered about is the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. And the, the story was is that Al Capone wanted to rub these people out and have these people dress up like police. Well, one thing I do know, being a true crime author in this day and age, is that there's a maxim. That is, any time you hear about a massive drug bust, it's the cops thinning out the competition. Mm -hmm. I don't think it was much different back then. Exactly. That's what my family told me, that it was the police that did it. But I needed some proof before I would put that into my book. There's two books that recently came out. One is called Alcatraz, 
The Gangster Years by Dr. David Brown, and the other is Get Capone by Jonathan Eig. Both of them have backed me up on that, that it was the police that did it. Also, I have had so many wonderful people get in touch with me in Chicago, you know, gentlemen that are in their 90s, and they said, we all knew that. We all knew it was the police that did it, and we're surprised that it, you know, more people didn't know that. But the people in the city of Chicago knew it was not Al Capone. And it wasn't his M.O. I mean, if he wanted to get Bugs Moran, Boom. he would have gotten him. <laughs> he would have got him. They would have gotten him, absolutely. They didn't need that sort of subterfuge. It's like, no. the, uh, it's like, did anybody ever bother to ask why the Boston Tea Party, they dressed up like Indians if they want people to know what they were doing? <laughs> Thank you for saying that, and thank you for telling your audience that. But, uh, yeah, um, it's just, it was the police. They were stealing alcohol off of the back of um, Bugs Moran's trucks. And Bugs' soldiers said, what are you guys doing? You know, when your captain finds out about this, you'll get fired. And so the policemen knew some city council people, they, they, you know, they were asking what they should do, and of course, then the Secret Six gets involved in this, and they told them to get their, you know, to do that and to set it up to make it look like it was Al Capone. I also had a very funny quirk of faith that that happened to me. My husband's uncle married the sister of Johnny May, who was the supposed mechanic that was killed in the Valentine's Day murder. Johnny May told his brother that the police were stealing liquor off of uh, the back of the trucks, and Bugs was going to do something about it. So, you know, I've got it from two sources. Now, this reminds me of the city of Tacoma, Washington. There's a little sidelight here. That Again with the Washington city. Well, that's because <laughs> Tacoma was so corrupt. Again, this is kind of a fun story. Is Tacoma was so corrupt that the mayor and the chief of police were running the vice in the town that the cops were supposed to be busting. So the, the half of the police force rebelled and began raiding the speakeasies and the bordellos that were being run by the chief of police. Uh-oh. <laughs> It was, it was just a madhouse. It's one, one of the great corruption scandals of all time. We had a war within the police department between the two factions, those that were running the vice and those that were arresting the vice. And this yeah. is very similar to what apparently was going on uh, in Chicago at that time. And what we have, uh, we had Peter Christ on the show from Law Enforcement Against Prohibition saying the exact same thing goes on today because it's the exact same situation. The, the lure of corruption, uh, the, the lure of the easy money, is one reason why we still have prohibition on other things today. There's more money to be made in corruption than there is in legality. And there was another um, quirk of fate that kind of led into Al Capone and my grandfather doing what they were doing. Um, Al Capone um, needed to leave um, New York. Um, Something happened and he needed to get out of town. And so Johnny Torrio brought him into Chicago and, you know, to help him and to be, a, you know, a strong arm, you know, for him. Well, in November of 1920, Al Capone's father drops dead of a massive stroke. 
which left my grandfather then, who was the oldest, he was married at the time, he had a son who was my father, left him to be the patriarch of the family. So he needed to take care of his mother and the six siblings that were still at home. And so, you know, he and Al were talking, and Al said, you know, Ralph, if you come to Chicago, because my, my grandfather was the brains, he, he was the businessman, you come to Chicago, I think we have an opportunity here to make a lot of money and to take care of our family. My grandfather told me himself at one point in time, he was running over 300 different establishments, hiring, paying the bills, you know, making sure the money was there, and he didn't have a fax machine, a computer, or a, a cell phone. And they they worked. So, uh, Uncle Matt, mm-hmm. what did he end up doing? Oh, Matt was, you know, they, they used to say that there was a curse on the family, and the curse was that these younger boys grew up, as did my father, in the lap of luxury, and and they weren't really gritty, like, you know, my grandfather and Frank and Al. They didn't have the eye of the tiger. Correct. They did not have the eye of the tiger. And so the older men were always belittling, you know, the younger guys and, of course, the second generation. My grandfather felt personally responsible after my, my father took his own life. And he, he told me, kind of admitted to me, that he, he, he was too hard on him, but he wanted to, you know, man him up. He just wanted him to be a man, and he didn't feel that he was a man. So, you know, they, my Uncle Matty, you know, tried, well, he was, he was a big shot. And he loved prize fighting, and he was ringside at every major fight in Chicago and would even go to other cities to watch, you know, the fights there. So that's what he did? He wasn't part of the family business? No, none, none of the younger boys were. So he um, just, he sponged off the family business, but he, he didn't work? Correct. He did that work. Nice work if you can get it. I know. <laughs> I want an Uncle L too. Yeah. We're going to take a 60-second break. When we come back, I want to talk about how in 1991, the American Bar Association litigation section retried the Al Capone case. We'll hear about that in 60 seconds on True Crime Uncensored. plastic pony in front of Albertsons, you are no longer tied to your computer. You are now free to roam while Barstow is burning and take Outlaw Radio with you everywhere you go. Grab an Outlaw Radio iPhone application, the smoke and drink and interrupt in 24-hour party that you follow now follows you. Your iPhone is now the easiest way to stay connected with your friends at Outlaw Radio. Change the way you listen to the radio seven days a week. Now available in the iTunes app store. There are some things in life that just don't go together. But listen to this. You take one drop-dead gorgeous woman. 
You add an incredibly wealthy, handsome man. You put them together. They have all the money, clothes, jewels, drugs, alcohol they could possibly want. Well, then you throw in a Glock 9mm handgun. It's all good fun until someone gets killed. Fatal Beauty, the shocking true story of beautiful Rhonda Glover, who put 13 bullets from a Glock 9mm into her boyfriend of 15 years, Jimmy Jost. Oh, she said he was abusive. The friend said he was passive. Either way, he was dead. Fatal Beauty, available January 2011 from Pinnacle True Crime by Burl Bear, living legend, true crime author, and trust me, he's brilliant, I know it, because I am Burl Bear, author of Fatal Beauty. Yes, of course. Burl Bear, I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Uh, I am Burl Bear. A little quick update. Is that commercial said available January 2011. We're well past January 2011. That book has been out, been out for a while. I do have another one coming out. April of 2012. Headshot. Working tight level was head in the bucket because they cut the guy's head off and put it in a bucket of concrete and threw it in the Puyallup River. Sounds like a plan. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't a very good plan. It was a very good book, though. Actually, I wrote it a few years ago. It's coming out again with a brand new brand new cover on it. Another new book I have out that's only 99 cents on your Kindle or Nook. It's called Nobody's Perfect, a collection of short stories about imperfection. And I forgot to mention Howard in the book, but Howard, the next book I do, I'll, I'll mention you in. A great book by Deirdre Capone called Uncle Al Capone. And it's available right now from your favorite bookseller. I don't know if it's available electronically. Is it available electronically, Deirdre? Yes, it is. It's on Kindle and Nook. Well, one of you get a Kindle, Nook, or in paperback, because I have it right here in my hot little hand with a lovely picture of Uncle Al smiling on the front with some cigars in his pocket. Is it really Deirdre or Deirdre? Yeah, what is it? It's an Irish name, and in Ireland they do say Deirdre. My mother liked the name, the sound of an A at the end. So I pronounce it Deirdre. Yeah, okay, there you go. That's the American uh, pronunciation. Yeah, Americanization of Emily. American pronunciation. Deirdre, I've never heard of Deirdre. Deirdre. That's a Beach Boys song yeah, written by Brian Johnson. You can't trust those Irish. <laughs> no, you can't. Oh, damn. Oh, no. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's not like a nativist from 1840s. Yeah. According to David Huddleston, you're correct. According to who? David Huddleston. We don't want the Irish. No, we don't well, want the yeah. Irish. Uh, for what? Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, okay. Like, <laughs> the Irish planted the railroad. But the, uh, I thought it was the Chinese. Random placing saddles comments? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, I, I kid the Irish. I, I do. Yeah, well, they're not dry, kidding when dry, they talk you, about you. What, you, 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 you put the alcohol too far away from them? I, I've been an Irishman in radio many, many years. That's because disc jockeys always use Irish names except for me. That's right. I don't know why that is. Has there been a study on why disc jockeys use Irish names? Because it's easier to get to the booze oh, okay. with an Irish name. I, I don't know. As well, Al Capone I, said, why not treat our business like any other man treats his? It's something to work at in the daytime and forget about when he goes home at night. There's plenty of business for everybody. Why kill each other over it? Well, apparently he's not racist. <laughs> I think it was mostly is that if you're in that business, if you put yourself in the rackets and you violate the basic covenantal terms, if you're going to violate a covenant, you've got to face the consequences. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're going to, rat's a rat. Oh, yeah, that's and, and that's one thing that uh, Al Capone would never, ever do. And nobody uh, in his organization did. They never ratted on anybody. 
Nowadays, you even have heads of families who are the informants. Well, I think that was the difference between Al Capone and Whitey Bulger. Whitey Bulger was rabid. He was rabid? No, <laughs> he ratted. Oh, I thought he said he was rabid. He ratted. Yeah. I think he was both. Yeah, the damn Irishman. <laughs> well, next yeah, week, there. next week we have back on Andrew DiDonato, who was a foot soldier in the Gambino crime family, mm-hmm. and uh, as he quickly, well, not quickly, but as he eventually figured out when they say we got your back, they mean we got a knife in it. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Thank goodness my kids are half Italian. I think that that'll protect me. Don't you think? No. No. Oh, no. Okay, just check. And actually, Billy C., uh, son of uh, Wild Bill, uh, actually, his father put out a hit on Andrew. Actually, it apparently didn't go through because they're both still alive. They'll be on the show next week. Things have changed a lot back from the days of Al Capone. Will they be on the phone next week? Yeah. Okay. Why, are you afraid they're going to be here? I didn't like that. <laughs> what? Well, if they were going to be here, I just, uh, you know, I don't It like scares this. you? Yeah. You know, Deirdre, we've had people on this show that have had death threats before they've come on. We've had oh, Henry I, Hill on this I show. Like my, yeah, but I no one like wants to kill Henry. They just want him to stop drinking so much. Well, there you go. <laughs> have you had any death threats, Deirdre? Deirdre? Yeah, I did. I did back in Chicago. Yes, I did. When was that? Probably the first time when I was probably about 18 years old. Um, I I was date raped by a guy solely because he wanted to be part of the, the mob. And he thought, you know, he knew... Well, that'll he, help. Yeah, that's you know, good for his reputation. Find, uh, let's date rape uh, Al Capone's uh, niece. Uh, don't get me in. <laughs> no, he, he knew something about me. I was really a good girl. I was a good Catholic girl, and I didn't believe in sex before marriage and that kind of stuff, and he knew that about me. And he knew that I would I would want to marry him then, and that would be his inroad. So I, after this happened, I took him, and my grandfather met him. My grandfather would have nothing to do with him. He saw him for what he really was. The poser. Mm-hmm. So yep. how'd things go for him after the, the family found out that you were date-raped? Well, my... my are you still aunt, looking for him? No, <laughs> they probably are. My my Aunt Matthew offered to have him killed for me. <laughs> Did you say, no, oh, thanks, Andy, I'll do it myself? Did you hear that Capone laugh I, I just then? Yeah. I, I should have taken, taken her up on it. Have you ever wanted to have anybody killed? Did I ever? Yeah. Oh, sure. Uh, probably... Probably I wish people were dead. You know, I'm going to be 72 next month, and so I'm kind of out of that kind of thing. But I'm sure there have been times in my life where I just, you know, wish that, you know, I could kill somebody. But it's not socially acceptable. I know. What, 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 what? So there's not a what phone number that, that you, you, were, you weren't left a phone number by anybody <laughs> in your family? Here, in case well, something I, happens, here's this phone number. Well, yeah, there's still... I mean, if, if I wanted to be part of that, I'm sure that I could be part of that. Um, you know, after my Aunt Matthew died, I inherited the Capone family gravesite. So I, I have a grave waiting there for me at the foot of Al Capone. So I'm part of that core family, and once you're part of that family, I still have Goombas, people that are close to me and my family, that are still very connected. So, when Geraldo was doing his thing... Yep. How'd that work with the family? I mean, did you think that they were... Well, 
they wanted me to to be part of it. I was living up in Minnesota at the time, and the producer of the show got a hold of me. I don't recall exactly how they did. And I politely declined. I knew that there was not going to be anything there. Just tickets to Grand Funk. Yeah. <laughs> Some... That's a commercial idea. Uh, yeah, the, the ending of that particular show will be etched in my brain. <laughs> yeah, well, it was the biggest thud in <laughs> the dinner. history of television. I, I, it's like I, what was I, in I, Joe I, McCarthy's I, briefcase, a bottle of scotch. And then Freddie Got Fingered came out after that. So. But the, um, uh, uh, let me ask you this. I, I read somewhere that, uh, that Uncle Al was uh, somewhat responsible for Louis Armstrong's career, Nat Cole's career. How did yeah. you, what was this show business cross? What, what, did, do you know anything about that? Sure. My grandfather had a, a place in Cicero that he called the Cotton Club. When my grandfather was growing up in Brooklyn, um, New York, uh, he became very good friends of a man by the name of Oni Madden. Oni Madden started the Cotton Club in Harlem. And my grandfather thought that was such a great idea to give black entertainers, you know, a chance to perform that he opened up a cotton club in Cicero. The difference between the two cotton clubs was the one in Cicero, the blacks, in order to get there, had to go through white neighborhoods, and they literally were in danger of being killed because, of course, they couldn't leave their, at the time, ghetto. So my grandfather used to have to go with armed guards and pick these black entertainers up, take them to the cotton club, and then take them back to their home again. So one time my grandfather took me to a then nightclub in Chicago called the Chez Paris, and um, um, Nat King Cole was performing at the time, and afterwards we went back and, you know, saw him, and... Nat King Cole himself told me that his career was because of my grandfather, you know, letting him perform there. My grandfather uh, discovered Ethel Waters also. So um, there's just a lot of... Sophie Tucker loved my grandfather and my uncle and had nothing but good things to say about them. Now, do you guys know... um, the name Gilda Gray? No. Okay. Pearl, Mark. Fill us no. in. Gilda Gray was um, an entertainer in the 30s. She got her start at the Chicago uh, World Fair in 1935. She's the girl that invented the shimmy. You know, if I could... Oh, yeah, she'd be like, like my sister Kate. Sister Kate, correct. Well, the story about um, Gilda Gray is one day my uncle was going into one of his houses of prostitution and he saw this girl sitting there and he went up to her and he said, what's your name? And he just looked at her and he says, you know, you should not be working here. Why are you here? And she said, well, my father died. She was from Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin, and her father had died and she needed some money and, you know, she didn't have anything else that she could do. So Al Capone gave her a bunch of money, peeled up bills, said, you go back to Whitefish Bay and you learn to do something that you'd be good at. Well, she then performed at the Chicago World's Fair. So, you know, if, if you look her up, it's, it's quite an interesting story. But 
you know, Al Capone told her not to be a prostitute. Good thinking. Yep. <clears throat> well, your uncle wasn't into uh, any of the other vices, was he, other than uh, running, running uh, alcohol? No. Uh, the outfit was involved in three different businesses. They were involved in gambling, prostitution, and alcohol. Three things all, that people wanted. Right. And all, all three of those things are legal somewhere today, you know? So... It you know it was illegal then. It's it's legal and okay now. They just didn't stay in the business long enough. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. It just depends on where you are. Where he says, I've seen this is from Al Capone. I've seen gambling houses too in my travels. You understand? And I never saw anyone point a gun at a man and make him go in. I've never heard of anyone forced to go to a place and have some fun. Exactly. Exactly. No one was. You know, was made to go into a speakeasy and drink alcohol. Um, just that's what the people wanted. Now, my my family prided themselves that they they really got good alcohol. They went up to Canada, they went to the Bahamas, and they bought high quality alcohol. No one who ever drank any of their alcohol went blind or you know died or anything from, you know, the stuff that was in it. It was good quality alcohol. They thought they were doing a good job. Yeah, giving the people what they want and give them high quality stuff. Correct. None of this homebrew stuff. There was just an article in the paper yesterday, Samoa. You've heard of Samoa. It's a little island place with these big, huge guys. They just had a very shocking cultural thing happen there. There were these two brothers started drinking. And as the drinking went on, they got into an argument. And the argument escalated over a period of time. One was finding fault with the other. And then the argument became physical. By morning, one of the two brothers was dead. Now, in Samoa, culturally, this was so shocking. It has uh, Samoa just in an outrage. First of all, the question was, I was reading this article last night, is the Samoa saying, what could cause brothers to argue with each other? Because culturally, that is such an, an unusual thing. What could cause this insanity where a brother would fight against brother? What would cause an insanity where the two brothers would actually physically go at each other were to the point where one of them would wind up dead? And they were going, this, had, this was something that was so unusual. They had to look, what what could have done this? And one of the problems they have is they got an alcohol problem in Samoa, which is exactly what you're talking about, of there's some really potent homebrew stuff going around there that is driving people nuts, far beyond just regular regular alcohol poisoning. And uh, there's a, and this has caused a major sociocultural crisis in Samoa, the fact that one brother would fight with another. I wanted to uh, talk about the this retrial that you picked. Oh yes, we were going to mention that in 1991, I believe what? it was. Am I correct? Correct. 1991. The American Bar Association litigation section, following a practice they've often used, decided to retry the 1931 Capone income tax case. And it was chosen because the AB annual meeting was in Chicago. Now, this was an actual trial, not merely a reading from the original transcript. They had prosecutors, they had defense attorneys, they had the whole thing. And what was the result? The jury found Al Capone not guilty on all counts. Verdict was met with thunderous applause. Within days, major newspapers throughout Europe and even some of the states carried lead articles about the acquittal. Correct. Things are different now. 
Mm. He was also retried this last February at St. Thomas Law School in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and found not guilty. But they did not prove income tax evasion. All the first trial did in 1931, the only thing they proved is Al Capone spent money. They never proved that he earned money. <laughs> hey, Deidre. I should be so lucky. We're out of time. We're out of time. Wow. Right Boy, this hour just flew by. I enjoyed this, guys. Hey, you you are great. It was wonderful first time, even better the second time around. Folks, the book is called Uncle Al Capone. Not only does she dispel myths and have great pictures in here, but if you like to cook, the recipes are well worth the price now of the we're bitch. talking. Now, now we're great recipes in the book. Thank you so much for being our guest again. Thank you very much, Thanks. gentlemen. Thank you. Right. Deirdre or Deirdre, whatever you want to pronounce it, Marie Capone, Uncle Al Capone, great book. Available for your Kindle, your Nook, or in paperback. Next week, Andrew DiDonato of uh, Escaping the Mob, former Gambino crime family foot soldier, and Billy C., whose father had uh, a hit put out on Andrew. Mention Danny Trejo will be here today. Yes, and uh, I own a pit bull. I hope he likes pit bulls. Did I own a pit bull? My pit bull is a sweetheart. Unless you're a Pomeranian. My dog my dog ate someone's Pomeranian and brought her to me. Cost me uh, stop it, would you, Burl? <laughs> okay, I'll stop it. Ladies and gentlemen, guess what's next? Magic Matt Allen and the Demons of Decadence featuring, yes, legendary Burl Bear, Howard Lapidus, Mark C.G. Boyer, Johnny Cosmo, and little shorty Ralph. And... <laughs> But Ralph is wonderful. He's short on talent, big on mouth, wonderful it human being. He's I don't know why. It doesn't even matter how hard you try. Keep that in mind. I'm designed this rhyme to explain in due time. All I know. Time is a valuable thing. Watch it fly by as the pendulum swings. Watch it 